Hello podcast listeners, and welcome to another episode of Living Well with Kathleen Saunders, your weekly podcast where we discuss the financial, physical, spiritual, and social well-being of everyday people like you and me. The information shared in this show is for general information purposes only and should not be used to make any personal changes to your lifestyle or health without consulting the appropriate financial, medical, or healthcare professionals. My guest today is Judy Gardner-Chen. Judy holds a Bachelor of Arts and also received a Social Service Worker Diploma with Honours in 2013. Her diverse educational background also includes administration, criminology, early childhood, and women's studies. She is currently a college instructor specializing in addictions and community service work. Judy has over 15 years of frontline professional experience supporting adults with developmental disabilities and has a passion to advocate for the marginalized. Judy was elected to the OCSWSSW Council in May of 2014 and has been re-elected this year for her third and final term. And she is currently working on her master's in education. Well, hello there, Judy. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Hello, Kathleen. How are you? I'm awesome. Looking forward to our conversation today. Before we start with the questions and so forth and getting into the serious topic, I should say, please share with me a little bit about your role as a program instructor. So um, I am a college instructor, and I usually teach community service work, which is a community service work diploma. And then also, in addition, I will teach the addictions worker diploma. And I've been doing that for, well, since 2013. So these are diploma programs. I currently, um, of course, because of Corona, I currently teach online. Um, and I think I will be taking a year off to work on my master's in education oh, good for as you. of this September. Awesome. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. good for you. So these are diploma programs. Is that so the standard two-year program or is it three-year program? No, these are just um, a one-year program. Oh, okay. One-year program. Awesome. Yes. Yes. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's definitely something I enjoy doing. Um, and it's given me a window into more so the... Um, the practical application when it comes to addiction and addiction worker programs, working in rehab facilities and things of that nature, because my background um, when it comes to working with people in addiction has been people who are dual diagnosis. They tend to, um, or have a concurrent disorder. They tend to struggle with something like anxiety or schizophrenia along with addiction. So even just teaching this program, it's just given me a broader perspective of addiction. Oh, awesome. Great. Thanks for Mm -hmm. sharing that. Can you explain for us what is drug addiction? What does that really look like? Okay, so um, I'm going to use the definition from CAMH, which is the Canadian Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. And when it comes to CAMH, um, addiction is the word that is often used to refer to any behaviour that is out of control in some way. Okay, so it's not just drug addiction, right? Okay. But we're going to focus on substance abuse today. Mm-hmm. But according to them, um, mental health and addiction is also used to explain the experience of withdrawal when a behavior such as gambling is stopped, okay? So not just drugs. And they Mm. further go on to describe addiction as involving the presence of something they refer to as the four C's, which are number one, craving, number two, a loss of control of the amount or frequency of use, number three, the compulsion to use, and number four, use despite the consequences, meaning, you know, you're using and um, paying thousands of dollars for your drug addiction in this case, um, and then, you know, you're behind on your rent. Okay, Mm -hmm. so that's like the working definition of addiction, and we can talk about um, withdrawal and dependence as we move through. Awesome, great. So, Tommy, uh, what is the most common uh, drug of choice 
by drug addicts. I don't know if that's the correct wording to use drug of choice, but in in your experience and what you have observed, what seems to be the, the main drug that people tend to go to? Okay, so, you know, um, based on the media, we often think that it's going to be marijuana or what we refer to as cannabis or cannabinoids. But mm-hmm. um, statistics indicate that almost half of Canadians report that they have used an illicit drug at some time in their lifetime. Cannabis is it's the most used illicit drug, but then it's followed very closely by hallucinogens, cocaine and crack, and ecstasy. And um, and then when it comes to the research, illicit drug use in Canada is more common amongst males and females, and those are individuals aged 20 to 24 mm. years. Wow. Yeah. Is there mm-hmm. any reason why it's that age group? Um, you know... Drug abuse and addiction is a very, when it comes to usage, I often, I try to steer clear of making assumptions with those questions because it's such an individual thing, right? A lot of the time, um, I like to use the iceberg concept where the tip of the iceberg might be the drug abuse, right? But underneath the surface, there are many contributing factors. We do have individuals who have mental health issues you know, who use it to self-medicate, to self-soothe. Sometimes they don't know they have other mental health issues, right? Mm -hmm. And then we also have individuals who use it as a coping mechanism for something like trauma that they've been through, you know, or hurt or pain. So um, it's it's difficult, even if we're talking about the um, risk factors for why people decide to become addicted or use in the first place you know i can share some risk factors with you if you like yeah please do because um i try to talk talk about it from the perspective of risk factors and impulsivity um is one of the major risk factors you know impulsive behavior right because people may become addicted for many reasons but you know, many years ago, we had the um, Human Genome Project. I don't know if you remember where they were able to figure out, you know, what certain genes on our genetic chain do, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And it, it gave us a, a window into looking at, like, genetic factors and things like that. So when it comes to drug abuse and genetic factors, some people may inherit vulnerabilities, you know, uh, meaning that um, they are more prone to become addicted to certain things. Okay. And during that uh, genome project, they isolated something that uh, people refer to as the alcoholic gene. doesn't mean that you're going to become a drug addict or, you know, an alcoholic. It just means that you are more susceptible okay. to it, right? right. Yeah. So um, as opposed to a cause, that's a risk factor. And then your environment can also be a risk factor, you know, the home you grew up in, if you're exposed to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, substance abuse and people around you are always using, right, and your community and the attitude of your peers, which is common amongst uh, teenagers and adolescents, family and culture towards substance abuse, like if it's okay to drink, you know, all the time or, or if you see it growing up, then that makes you more susceptible, mm-hmm. right? Right. Another big risk factor, which is not a cause, right, but it's a huge risk factor, are mental health issues, especially here in Canada, because over 50% of people who struggle with substance usage also have a mental health problem or have had one at some point, um, you know, in their life. And as I mentioned, you know, they're using it to self-soothe, you know, um, and they're using it as a form of coping because they don't know how to deal with their mental health right. issues. Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, would you? Mm-hmm. I just wanted to ask. Would you say that there's um, one culture more than a, another culture that is more susceptible to these uh, drug addiction, alcohol addiction? You know, I really do shy away from like labeling and putting a label on a particular culture, I can say that there are social factors, okay, um, such as poverty, mm-hmm. family conflict, uh, chaos, and stress that also fall under the umbrella of risk factors, um, social exclusion due to race and gender, 
right? right? And emotional and or physical abuse or even experiencing discrimination and or aggression. So if you look at it from that perspective, right, um, and you look, you know, in Canadian society or society as a whole, who is going through those things, right? We can look at um, the First Nations community who are disproportionately represented in a lot of those areas. And then we can also look at, you know, the Black um, Caribbean Canadian community, mm-hmm. or I like to refer to them as people of color, mm-hmm, right? right? You know, mm-hmm. who are exposed to this. Right. And then if we're talking, you know, with very recent events, um, we look at Corona and the social isolation and then what we're exposed to in the media as far as racism and trauma, especially as I'm living in Toronto with um, just the high rates of young men of color in particular that are disproportionately treated in negative ways by the police. So those are risk factors. And so because um, cultures will fall into those categories, yes, it, it can like cause uh, mm-hmm. the amount of substance abuse to increase. Right. So true. Thank you for, you know, that great explanation that you broke it down there because I never looked at it that way. But definitely when you break it down to race, gender, discrimination, certain uh, cultures or certain groups of people tend to fall into those brackets. Yeah. And also, Kathleen, you know, as a instructor, I really try not to like, I'm always trying to tell my students, we don't use labels. I don't even use pictures of people on my presentation slides. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why I'm so cautious with what I say, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. My, yeah, but it, it really makes sense. And you educating us on that today will help some of us maybe to remove some of the labels and the, some of the stigmas that we have put on just because of what we've seen in the in the media and what we hear or what we see so i appreciate that thank you so much um tell us a little bit about some of the following drugs i'm gonna uh, name a few can you just explain about the drug and the effects that they have on a person so the first one i'm gonna mention um, which we i'm sure we've all heard is fentanyl mm-hmm. okay um shall i summarize I can I can focus on fentanyl and then talk about um, a couple of the other categories as sure. well, if that's Please okay. Please do, yeah, definitely. All right, so um, let's just talk about um, narcotics, right? Because narcotics are depressants that affect the central nervous system, right? Yeah. And the central nervous system controls most functions of the body and the mind. So it does consist of two parts, which are the brain and the spinal cord. And as we know, the brain is the center of our thoughts. And it basically interprets our whole environment outside of us. And basically, it is the origin of control over the body. So narcotics are depressants such as opium, morphine, heroin, and hydromorphone. And then fentanyl, it's a powerful pain medication. That's what it has been used for historically. And it it is an opioid like Mm -hmm. morphine, codeine, and oxycodone and methadone and um what has been happening i guess on a street level is based on my research and you know i'm not on the front lines anymore um is that um sometimes it's mixed up with other substances um and it can um it can cause sort of more of um an overdose effect it can lead to cardiac arrest so yeah um did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, you did. You did. Okay. You, you did really well. So, and then also, if I could just mention, since we're talking about drugs, we have stimulants, right? Which are chemicals that increase nervous system activities. And then cocaine, caffeine, amphetamines, Ritalin, and then hallucinogens will, would fall into that category. And the reason I'm mentioning those two categories is because every chemical does have the potential for abuse if we're talking about drug addiction. Mm, And it's important for us to know, especially if someone's listening, not all abuse substances are illegal, like, you know, things like caffeine. And now the government is talking about um, also um, decriminalizing 
certain illicit substances, right? Mm -hmm. People sometimes will even overuse antibiotics, which can be considered substance abuse, right? And then the major one that um, is abused is alcohol. It's the most popular substance of abuse when you look at the research. Mm -hmm. That's so true. And, um, you know, that's, I'm going to say maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. That's one that a lot of people don't really pay attention to in that it can start off very slowly as a social drinking. People do that socially. Um, and then I guess maybe through one of these mental health issues, whether they get depressed. Mm-hmm, you know, they end it's up a depression. Dep- yeah. yeah mm-hmm. So people can end up starting to hit the bottle, as they say. And now we're starting to see a lot of young people that are drinking, whether it's socially to be cool with their friends or you know they're getting the alcohol from uh, from home you know something else i wanted to touch on uh, the marijuana that has now been legalized how are you seeing that increase uh, that addiction increase amongst the young people you know that's such an interesting question right because i was actually recently doing some research about it and um you know, according to research, it says that cannabis use amongst teens has gone down since its legalization oh. in 2018. That's what the research says, Kathleen. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, as a professional, uh-huh. and when it comes to my colleagues, I I really strongly beg to differ. The issue with research is that, you know, sometimes they take it from a 10-year period, mm-hmm, right? And right. so and it comes out in, in different um you know, time periods. Uh, They only legalized uh, cannabis in October 2018. Now, what I can say is that when it comes to things like cannabis, what we have seen is an increase in the presentation of drug-induced psychosis, which is a condition that affects the way your brain processes information. And this increase has been noticed in individuals under the age of 25. You know, and psychosis causes an individual to lose touch with reality. And what's alarming about it is that these teens um, or individuals who are under the age of 25 have not used any other substances outside of, you know, cannabis products, right? Right. So drug or substance-induced psychosis can is something that can occur from taking too much of a certain drug. And then what happens is you have an adverse reaction you know, after mixing substances, but when they're going into the psychiatric unit, they haven't mixed any substances. They've only, they've only used uh, marijuana or smoked pot, right? So, and this is very scary because it includes delusions or false beliefs that are firmly held despite clear evidence you know, around you that, mm-hmm. you know, what you're thinking is not true. Also, it includes things like hallucination, which can at times involve violence. Right. So when these young people are going into the psychosis, a lot of the times the police are bringing them in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, when you look at it from the perspective of, um, you know, some young people getting um, treated in a negative way by police, you know, it's very dangerous because if someone's being violent and in a psychosis, you know, um, a police officer may be called to a location and they are just trying to protect themselves and that person can get injured or even killed, right? So that's what we're seeing is an increase in um, um, marijuana-induced psychosis. But according to statistics, um, <laughs> it hasn't really affected young people. So I'm laughing because I, I totally think yeah, that's I'm, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm sp- stumped at that too because it seems to definitely be the opposite way. Yeah, um, so, you know, I hear what you're saying with the police. I have a couple of questions around what you've just mentioned there. Now, it seems to me, I don't know um, what you know on this, that the police seem to me to need more training on how to handle mental health issues because we're seeing many cases in the news and around about where people, the police just not handling the situation um, correctly, and they're arresting someone who obviously has a, a, a mental health issue. Uh, do you have any information on if you know police get any training when they go to the academy? I do think that when it comes to police foundations within the past few years, especially here in Ontario, uh, I think his name was Sammy Yatim. He was someone who struggled with mental health. He was shot, I think, on a bus. 
Mm. You know, um, mm. but he did have a weapon. I think they've ad- added some sort of mental health training to the police foundations program. You know, but when we have these conversations in in class with the students, I would like to remind them that um, we can't always frown upon police. Like they're okay. We're, I'm not talking about the group that are clearly racist or prejudiced, right? right. I'm talking about where they're coming from, um, the lens that they look through is protection of the public, right? Whereas as a mental health professional, the lens I look through is completely different. And that's why their approach to situations is completely different than somebody who has a full understanding of mental health, Mm -hmm. right? Which I don't really think if they add like a one course, they can fully understand it. Um, So um, when it comes to the police, um, we have to be mindful of how we judge them because when someone is in a psychosis, I'll just give you like a quick, a quick example. Yeah, I sure. know of someone who was in a drug induced psychosis from, I think it was crystal meth. Um, they were a very small man, meaning about 135 pounds. And it took the police tased them twice wow. and it took six police to hold them down. Hmm. So when people are in a psychosis, right? They can become also very strong. Mm. Now, even for myself as a mental health professional, that can be a very scary situation, right? So then I've got the fight or flight going on in my body. And then, you know, um, imagine if someone's fearful, and then they've been trained to protect the public, that's the lens they're looking through. And then they also have something if the taser doesn't work, they have a weapon, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's all I, you know, so um, I really do read, try to read through um, all of the information when I hear these stories. Get the full about, story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about what's going on. Sure. Um, psychosis is no joke, you know. No. Um, it, it can be a very terrifying thing for both, of course, the person who's going through it. Because sometimes they're seeing, they're having delusions. They're thinking people want to hurt them. Right. They are maybe feeling as though they're being attacked, you know hallucinating it so sometimes um you don't know what you're walking into mm-hmm. right yeah. i do believe more training is needed but um i think um you know what would be great is if a mental health professional came every single time with um, a police officer to, to the situation wow mm-hmm. but sometimes the people calling they don't know the person is in a psychosis yeah you know you're assuming that the person calling the police is telling them the person is in a psychosis, but that may not be the case. They may just be scared, you know? Yeah. I think that's a good point that you brought up there, that uh, someone uh, with mental health experience, whether it be a social worker or whoever, uh, go to the scene with a police officer or at least um, a police officer being trained. I don't know if they can have special specializations in their, in their field. And as a police officer, but if they, uh, someone could go to the scene along with the person, if they seem to be out of control and maybe calm that person down and speak to them and basically just diffuse that situation that seems to be out of control. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, so another point that I wanted to go back to on what you just said, the, the hallucinogens, when people hallucinate, you know, mm-hmm. I, in a BC here, there's a particular area here where every day I'm driving and I'm seeing people dancing with themselves or they're having a conversation with themselves would that be from hallucinogens i think i i can't really analyze it just from what you're saying but Mm. a lot of times it's it's um probably an effect of the substance they're using Mm -hmm. i would say um sometimes cocaine um different opioids heroin um and things of that nature can cause individuals to behave in that way okay okay so it's just not mm-hmm. okay so it's just not more than one drug that does that reaction there's a few mm-hmm. others okay good to know all right uh, how quickly can a person become addicted to drugs okay so before i answer that question i just wanted to um, remind you like you know i talked to you about like um genetics right mm-hmm. and so a lot okay. of times we're born we don't They're know what's in, in our genetics right you sure, know yes um, because when we're born, we're not perfect anymore. And not, you know why I'm saying that as somebody who's a Christian, right? Yeah. But when it comes to um, how quickly a person can become addicted to drugs, everyone is different. 
And, um, you know, I, we can, if we have time, discuss the signs and symptoms later. But typically, when someone first uses the drug, they may, may perceive what they seem to be um, or how they seem to be feeling from the drug as a positive effect. They may also believe, you know, they can control their use. But, and it's very individual, drugs can quickly take over a person's life, you know, and then over time, if the drug use continues, other, what happens with addiction, other pleasurable activities will become, of course, less pleasurable, and then that person will take the drug just to feel normal. Mm -hmm. Now, if they have a mental health issue, right, and um, they're, they're using it to cope, sometimes taking the drug may assist them for a period of time in actually feeling normal. But you can't really say, unfortunately, how quickly someone can become addicted to drugs. Um, you know, I know of people who, I'll use myself in this example, I'll just be transparent. Now, um, in my, my family, I'm from the Caribbean, my mom is Cuban, my dad is from Antigua, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when I first tasted wine, I liked it, you know, it, you know, I mm -hmm. thought it was nice, right? right? Yeah. Um, but my husband, you know, when he first tasted beer, whatever, when he was young, he hated it. Okay. Um, now, in my family, there, you know, historically, my grandfather and his brothers and, and my great-grandfathers, they did have a problem with alcohol. So I tend to wonder if maybe that's why, because that's in my genetic pool, I I don't hate the taste of alcohol, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Where some people do. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to addiction... Some people will take their first hit or snort, I mean, the terms change so quickly, of cocaine and like it, and they could just like it right away and not be able to stop. Whereas other people may try it and get high and like it, but, you know, they don't need it. So it's, it's very difficult, even when it comes to treatment, there's no one size kind of fits all. Kathleen, so you're asking me some really hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm sorry. So sorry. So sorry. You know, talking about uh, coming clean, I guess I could come clean here and just speak on myself also. You know, it just jogged my memory because it's been such a long time that I even forgot that I had done this. I remember years ago, I had an, uh, a boyfriend that would smoke and he, he would even just sometimes just blow it into my own nostrils or into my mouth. And from mm -hmm. that alone, I think I got a high and I really didn't like the way it made me feel. You felt out of body. You felt that you weren't in control. I laughed at everything. The phone rang. I laughed. The TV was on. I laughed and it was just so uncontrollable. Um, mm -hmm. And I didn't like the way that it made me feel. So that was not something that was that I was going to turn around and make part of my life. So Absolutely. I guess that's, yeah. again, where you say how quickly or depends on the individual. Mm -hmm. Right. It does. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about alcohol now. How does alcohol affect a pregnant woman and her unborn child? Alcohol. Um, well, um, when it comes to alcohol and um, when I'm teaching my students, I, I tend to just focus on fetal alcohol syndrome. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, which is. Um, there are a lot of different symptoms to it, you know. Um, if I'm teaching about drugs specifically, um, you know, a lot of women will ask when they get pregnant, you know, is my baby going to be okay? Because I didn't know I was pregnant and I was doing some drugs and things of that nature. Can I just tell you what happens when alcohol yeah. and drugs, if a, if a woman is pregnant? Um, so there's a special concern when a woman is pregnant because of the physiological system of pregnancy, right? Um, mm. And there's a term pharma, pharmacokinetics, which is the time course of drug absorption and metabolism and excretion of the substance into the body. And that includes alcohol, right? Mm -hmm. And certain medications can reach the fetus and cause harm, right? So if a, 
if a pregnant woman drinks or is addicted to drugs, regular usage of some drugs can cause neonatal abstinence syndrome, which um, is something that is um, slightly different to fetal alcohol syndrome. This is when the baby goes through withdrawal upon birth. Mm. Um, and what's interesting when I do research it is that a lot of the research has focused on the effects of opioids um, because we know about fetal alcohol syndrome. But there's a lot of um, statistics out there and data that has shown um, alcohol and barbiturates, a barbiturate being a drug that acts as like a central nervous system depressant and also benzodiazepines, which are psychoactive drugs and even caffeine during pregnancy may cause the infant to show withdrawal symptoms at birth. And so what happens is um, drugs taken by a pregnant woman or the alcohol, Mm -hmm. uh, basically they cross uh, the placenta, right? And that's the same route that oxygen and nutrients go to, Mm -hmm. which are needed for the fetus to grow Mm -hmm. and develop. So a lot of time you see low birth weight. If if nothing else, you're going to see a low birth birth weight, right? Um, And then it causes abnormal development, Mm -hmm. which leads to birth defects, or even it can um, lead to death, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, but the minimal you'll get is an underweight baby, and then, of course, cognitively um, underdeveloped. You know, wow, that's so serious. So I didn't even realize coffee. I know coffee is, uh, has caffeine in it, but I didn't know that it could have that effect on a woman, a pregnant woman also. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I just wanted to mention also, yeah. like, so if the mom's blood pressure is reduced, right, mm-hmm. um, or drug, if drugs reduce uh, the mom's uh, blood pressure, this reduces the flow of blood to the placenta, and then it re- reduces the amount of oxygen and nutrients, right? right? So whatever you're taking, <laughs> you know, alcohol, whatever, caffeine, all that, uh, nicotine is another big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but okay. it's really important to make note of the fact that there's a lot of research out there, but sometimes the doctors don't know what specifically causes something mm, right yeah. they can just like say okay this person was exposed to a lot of risk factors and and blah 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 but we some a lot of people think we know for sure but there's a lot of things that are just iffy you know we don't know for sure, mm, sure. now there's a lot of research which i'm so fascinated with um into the environment of the womb which we know drugs can affect the womb but when it comes to being pregnant you know the chemicals and the hormones we produce from the different states of mood we have and the stress hormones Mm. can now affect the environment of the womb. So now that that research is coming out, um, I'm anxiously waiting to see if maybe they're going to, you know, pedal back and say, oh, this wasn't caused by alcohol. This was caused by the hormones the mom, Mm. you know, excreted because her spouse passed away while she was pregnant. Uh, what effective treatments are there for people with drug, a drug addiction? All right. So I have to say, first of all, when it comes to treatment, there's no one fix, one size fits all, mm-hmm. you know, um, approach, right? It depends on the severity of the addiction, um, available family supports. And of course, the most important component is uh, the person's motivation to change. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good, yeah. Right. Um, now with an addiction, um, you can, you know, stay at home looking for somewhere nearby. Um, but um, when it comes to treatment, it's, it's so, so individual. I can tell you um, that there are treatment approaches and in individual programs, which do continue to evolve. Um, the, and now, nowadays, the treatment programs are not fitting into the traditional way of approaching addiction. Um, like in places, I believe in Switzerland, they have treatment programs that where they actually give the, um, the individual the substance 
so that they can manage themselves, right? And they've mm-hmm. noticed that crime and all of those things associated with addiction have gone down in their society, right? But mm-hmm. many um, and all programs typically start with the detoxification process. Right. And, um, and um, depending on the substance, it's usually a medically managed withdrawal, which is often considered the first date of treatment, right? Um, and then the detoxification process where the body clears itself of the drugs, um, what happens is um, once you go through those phys- physiological effects, then you're ready to go into maybe possibly like a rehab. You know, mm-hmm. there are stories of people who stop on their own and go cold turkey. Mm-hmm. But um, I would say the most important component is a support system because uh, drug abuse is like a disease, right? And the support system that's really needed is not just for the addict themselves, it's for the family because it's the family who usually are, you know, suffering in silence sure. for a lot of different mm-hmm. reasons. I was about to ask you too, how can the family help this person? So they're part of the support system. Yeah. So um, one of the major things, and and we're talking about, you know, severe addiction here. Let's just, you know, think about cocaine addiction Mm -hmm. or something, you know, um, it's really important. uh, Sometimes the family can help the person by not enabling them, like by removing Um, whatever it is that they're supplying to the person that's helping them to get the drug. So if that person is, you know, living in your home for free rent so that they can use all the money they make at work for that substance, maybe removing that from them, you know, but a lot of people refer to that, the fact that the person needs to hit rock bottom and that rock bottom place is different for everybody because that um, place will motivate them to change because recovery and treatment can only be effective if that person on an individual level wants to change. And if they do, then the family can be their support system, right? Mm -hmm. And one way um, they can be their support system is by making sure that they get the help they need. And there's um, lots of Narcotics Anonymous programs where they um, have support groups which are confidential for family members to go to, right. you know, because addiction is a disease. And mm-hmm. also you can't help somebody if you're not, you know, a mentally healthy adult, as I like to say to my students. So you and you have to be strong because it, it's, um, it can be very um, just debilitating and um, energy draining mm-hmm. to go through the process of addiction with someone because sometimes it doesn't stick the first time, even if they do go into a treatment program. Right. Right. I hear you. I was just thinking while you were talking of a, a whole bunch of things that came to my mind. One in, <laughs> one in particular was a young man that I knew who was on crack cocaine and he got clean and he was doing well and then you know he got pulled back into it got clean again and you know so this seems to some be something i don't know would you say that to really overcome it you have to be really strong or is this drug that powerful that it could just keep pulling a person back because this guy generally is trying to get his life straight get, you know he's building a family and just one whether um, one pull or one line that he may have done, and that's it. He's back on to it all over again. The cycle starts all over again. Yeah, I think, you know, the road... Addiction is definitely something that is a lifelong... I th- can be a lifelong struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when I'm teaching the Addictions Worker Program, it's very interesting to me when I look at the stats, a lot of my students, or at least 50%, are actually recovering addicts, oh, addicts wow. in recovery, mm-hmm. who now want to sort of pay it forward sure. yeah. and work in, you know, work in addiction. Mm-hmm. And so one of the major things I speak to them about, I, I really try to do my research to talk to them about triggers, right? Mm-hmm. Because right. they're in recovery, mm-hmm. right? And so it's those triggers, because it's one thing to be in a treatment facility or in rehab, but when you go on into society, you're going to be triggered because 
um, you're going to be triggered, especially if you work in the field, by someone who looks like you, has your same circumstances, you know, or just even by um, emotions. Mm. Um, a, a trigger could be if you're not taking care of yourself by eating, eating, you know, eating properly or getting right. enough sleep. So um, I, you know, um, when it comes to that young man, I, I would say that it seems to me like he's being triggered, which is very common. Um, it's very common for individuals to go, you know, to relapse. That's what it's called, right? And so that's the subject that I talk about often because relapse, a lot of students get angry when I say it, especially if they're in recovery, but we teach that relapse is a part of recovery. Oh, okay. So, mm-hmm. you know, as mm-hmm. if so expect you're going to relapse, so you know, so it seems as though he's struggling mm-hmm. with that. Um, when you look at the research, it appears that, um, you know, if, if you stay the course and keep going back into rehab, the relapses will occur fewer, you know, few, far and few between. Mm-hmm. Maybe there are some issues that are triggering him uh, that he needs to go into counseling for so that he doesn't feel the urge to use, right? Because mm-hmm. using is a lot of the time a coping mechanism for not being able to handle things in society because you don't have those skills, right? Right. I guess so sorry. counseling goes along with um, you know, treatment yeah, as sure. well. I'm sure you know? I'm sure, I'm sure. You know, I've interviewed a few people on this show um who ha- were addicts and they speak about their journey. Um, the gentleman that I spoke to, he mentioned that hitting rock bottom, he said he hit rock bottom again. And then after he hit rock bottom, he hit it again and again and again. And so it was like, he talked about hitting rock bottom at least four times. And this gentleman that I spoke to was a Christian. He, uh, he talked about finally when he hit the fourth rock bottom, he looked up and basically he looked to God to turn around and say, you know, I need your help, mm-hmm. you know. So um, I also want to say too, maybe it's your environment. Maybe you might have to change your environment if you are uh, living in a neighborhood that's maybe all your buddies that they're doing the drugs um, that you need to move from that environment because you're not strong enough when you go out to be able to maybe withstand that temptation to go ahead and take part in that activity that you're trying to change from, right? Absolutely. You know, and um, since you brought up uh, the young man being a Christian, I do believe you need divine intervention. And um, with the 12 steps of um, Alcoholics Anonymous, they do talk about a higher power, which as a Christian, I'd look at as the most high creator of the universe that the Holy Hebrew Bible speaks about. You know, um, I think you need uh, divine intervention um, to help you to overcome that, um, you know, that monkey on your back, so to speak, right? And um, from a biblical perspective, Sometimes people will go into uh, rehab and they'll become, they'll get detoxed and they have, you know, they'll clean their system out and then they will go back into the same environment, but they haven't, they haven't put anything in to replace those things that they were used to doing. And it's just like that scripture uh, Christ spoke about, about the man who cleaned out his house, right? Mm -hmm. Right. and the demon was living there, and then the demon left, and the man cleaned out his house, but he didn't fill it with anything, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So then when the demon came back with more uh, demonic spirits, and I'm just summarizing because I don't have my Bible in front of me, you know, um, they were more powerful, and so the man was now worse off than he was before, and I think that that is a great sort of analogy, um, even if you're going going into rehab you have to fill your life with things that are different that don't involve triggers and if you have to remove people out of your life sometimes it may even be your partner you know so that you don't die from addiction you have to do that sometimes you really have to take some drastic steps like ending a relationship yeah and that's why sometimes you know people don't want to go in recovery because they know it they might be they feel they might be lonely these are their friends this is their social circle and that's actually one of the risk factors you know to becoming an addict social social um the social factors your peers everybody's doing it 
you know, and um, it seems okay for everybody. So you, you want to feel as though you're part of the group. Hmm, true. So, you know, you talked about mental health earlier and drug addiction, that sometimes it could be the underlining, there's an underlining cause to addiction. It's not just addiction only, they may have mental health issues. Can you just speak mm-hmm. on that a little bit more? Because I thought that was quite interesting. Some people, you know, struggle with uh, things. And this is just an example off the top of my head, like anxiety or extreme. Um, some people have phobias and things of that nature. And so when they drink, um, things like alcohol, they're not shy anymore. Mm. They can have a conversation with people, you know. And then there are other drugs. Um, some people may struggle with just incessant thoughts. Um, going around in their mind and so they take a substance like maybe cocaine or they might smoke some marijuana and they can sleep peacefully or those thoughts go away or they no longer hear the voices so so sometimes they're sucked into that sort of um, cycle of abuse because they're trying to self-medicate because there's an underlying issue right um, and, and maybe an underlying fear, um, you know, that they they don't realize they need treatment for. Hmm. Wow. Is there mm-hmm. such a thing? I don't know if there's such a terminology, but I'm just making up this word and you can correct me. Is there <laughs> okay. such thing as a, a controlled addict? I remember I worked in an office and could smell that alcohol on his breath and but he functioned mm-hmm. quite well at work. I mean, we don't know what he was like after um, I have heard the term functioning, functioning addict. addict. Thank you for that correction. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, there are lots of people like that. You know, um, my friend is currently in law school and there are a lot of her, her fellow students who use cocaine because it's a stimulant to stay up all night to be uh, able to study, uh-huh. you know, and these, there are a lot of people who are functioning addicts in society mm. and you're, your example just reminded me years and years and years ago, I worked for a, a huge uh, company at their head office and we had the, the boss of our location was an alcoholic mm-hmm. and there would be times there was, he was the boss and there was the guy who was just underneath him, you know, um, in hierarchy. And I remember I would look out the window cause it was a huge office and, um, the guy would be sort of helping him get out of his car to come in to the office. Mm, Wow. Right. Mm -hmm. But with functioning addicts like that, I don't know how serious yours was. You see, they're usually surrounded by tons of enablers and the enablers have, um, are getting a benefit from them. Mm, Right. Right. So they don't want them to go to rehab because, it, it, you know, they need them in their lives for some reason, mm, right? Yeah. And so this guy was like the figurehead of this huge, and it was a huge corporation. And um, yeah, you know, and I would just be like, wow, you know, he's stumbling in the office. They put him in his office and kind of locked the door. We couldn't talk to him or anything. Mm. And, we, you know, but this guy was really um, an alcoholic. Mm. And, uh, but, you know, everybody around him, helped him so he would be able to continue in his addiction oh wow yeah the enabler you said wow Mm -hmm. um just wanted to touch on depression uh, Mm -hmm. and and alcohol because would the depression lead to alcohol it could be either way the alcohol causes a person to be depressed and the depressed person becomes an alcoholic so it goes either way right I think it could go either way. Yeah. It, you know, um, alcohol is a depressant. Yeah. So, you know, um, let's just say if you're p- prone to depression and let's say you break up with your boyfriend and you drink, 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 and you're already depressed, you're going to go into a deep state of depression, you know, once you're um, coming down from that alcohol, so to speak, because it is a depressant, you know, um, and now it's so interesting to me that they, they allowed the liquor stores to remain open I know. <laughs> during, during the lockdown because um, we already have depression is on the increase. And so is anxiety in today's society. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, 
with the onset of the pandemic and everything that comes along with it, worry and socialization, when you look at the statistics surrounding a depression um, that a lot of people try to cope using alcohol and they're totally oblivious to the fact that alcohol is a depressant, right? A lot of people are, are showing signs of traumatic stress and severe depression. Um, you know, people who usually didn't sort of feel depressed before, mm. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. but I, you know, um, alcohol, I mean, it's a double-edged sword, right? With When it comes to alcohol and depression. And and I'm just going to say again, everybody is so uniquely individual, you know, some people are very melancholy, so it's probably not a good idea for them to drink, especially certain types of alcohol, you know, the, what they call the spirit, mm. because they can really, um, you know, make make you feel down and low okay so you're saying i didn't realize so uh, a glass of wine versus the spirits like you just mentioned uh has a different impact uh on an individual when it comes it to can. addiction okay. and that's not a professional opinion though okay okay <laughs> no problem awesome great this is Wonderful. I'm loving this um, information sharing here. One more thing I just wanted to ask. What are the success rates? I'm not sure if you know that information of getting individuals off drugs and into a treatment center. How successful is that? Um, I actually have some notes here when it comes to treatment. And, um, you know, I really couldn't find the success rates because Unfortunately, right, there are a lot of different treatment facilities. One of the best ones out here in Ontario, it's called Gene Tweed, right? Gene Tweed. Um, Gene, J-E-A-N-T-W-E-E-D, right? Mm, okay. And so, unfortunately, when you look up the statistics when it comes to success rates for treatment facilities and rehab facilities, they're all going to say things like 80 to 90% success rate, right? right? Mm -hmm. But then as an educator, I know for a fact that there's a relapse component, right, to um, addiction from whatever it is, even if it's gambling. So, And there's no one-size-fits-all approach. So it's really difficult to find um, reliable statistics when it comes to the success rate of treatment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Good. But they, they, there are really great treatment facilities. Um, you know, here we have the Canadian uh, Association for uh, Mental Health, CAMH. Right. And when you when you go on websites uh, such as those um, that are reputable agencies, CAMH is a great agency. They will sort of guide you to the different programs, right? And I think it's it's also um, good to be mindful. If someone says my success rate is really high for this drug or whatever, I would say run in the other direction because nobody can say that for sure. Mm, right. I hear you. You know, as a person of faith, as a Christian woman, do you give different advice to Christians? Because I mean, they're in a different place to receive. I don't yeah. Know, like, you know, like that. Sorry. as a believer, I really do feel like we all go through things, but this quote unquote demon of addiction can be very hard to overcome. So I, I always say, I love the Bible. I feel like it is a, a book of remedies for every life situation, everything you're going through in life, because it can offer a source of light in an otherwise dark and lonely world. Definitely. Right. So and many have struggled to find sobriety and many have received a helping hand through their own spirituality with a personal connection to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And I can say that as, as an educator, when polling my students, um, they have used a connection to what they call their higher power, right? But I know it's the creator of the universe and that's what they say has helped them through, you know? Um, I, you know, if I was talking to a Christian, I would say God is love and the Bible promises that God is always with Thank us, you. Mm -hmm. you know, and through our faith in God, we will receive help when we are weak. The Bible says God will forgive our sins and heal our hearts. And so in the darkness of addiction, you know, we tend to shut ourselves out from the, the rest of the world. And when we lead this sort of lifestyle that controlled by drugs and and um and things of that nature we tend to isolate isolate ourselves right but 
God's love is unconditional, and it's important to know, um, you know, guilt comes from our adversary, the devil. Oh, yeah. So, and know that, like, you know, Christ died for your sins, and you can go boldly before the throne of grace, and God will forgive you. Don't allow that sort of guilt, which is a huge factor in addiction, to sort of... Um, you uh, make, you, mm-hmm. make you not want to go to Christ. Mm-hmm. And there are some scriptures that, um, you know, I have shared with people for, and I'll just share one with you, yeah. which is um, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, mm-hmm. but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. And uh, that verse is, is um, it has long been cited mm-hmm. in the field of addiction, recovery, and sobriety, because Paul is warning us about being um, overconfident and thinking mm-hmm. we're stronger than we actually are mm-hmm. because we are vulnerable, which is a huge component of addiction. And so it reminds us of the promise of hope, yes. you know, that God will provide us with the strength that we need. Amen. So true. Praise God for that. Thank you so much for sharing that. One last question I have for you. If I have a family member that is um, an addict, uh, uh, how can I help that person? You know, um, I think the best solution mm-hmm. when it comes to whether or not you have a family member, or, um, not whether or not, whether you have a family member who is an addict is to get yourself into a program, mm-hmm. maybe a support group, Narcotics Anonymous. They're everywhere. Naranon, I believe it's called, and they're for the family members of um, substance abusers, right? And what happens is then you're exposed to all of the information you will need to get your family member help. They'll provide you with um, a book that's called uh, The Book: Share, Experience, Strength, and Hope. They'll provide you with a support system. Even if you're not sure if your family member is struggling with substance abuse, when if you go to a group, you know, by being exposed to uh, that confidential group, that'll give you a window into sort of the signs to look for. Mm-hmm. Because the most important thing as a family member is, is that you remain strong because it will be a journey. And you have to get to the place where you realize, which can be very hard, especially if you're something like a spouse or parent, where you realize that you cannot do it for them. Right, yeah. Right? And so I would say get into a support group. Um, and, and they actually have them going on even right now, you know, on Zoom, which is great because you don't have to show your face if Mm -hmm. you don't want to, Mm -hmm. but they're all around because um, there are trails of not destruction, but just negativity that unfortunately addicts have within the family. And sometimes it's a systems problem where it's some sort of a cycle within a family Mm -hmm. that needs to be addressed. And and maybe you're contributing to, it's not your fault, but you may be enabling them but you're not aware of it. So these groups will open you up to that information and provide you with the tools that you will need to be able to not only handle it, but to, you know, look for um, support systems outside of the home. That's perfect. I just want you to tell me the name of the book again that you mentioned for the uh, family support. Uh, yeah, I'm that. actually looking on my desk right now. It's called Naranon. I have all these flyers that people send me. So there's <laughs> Naranon which it's a family groups program that's for the family Naranon family group. And, and then they give you, or I don't know if they give it to you, um, but um, they have a book. It's called sharing experiences, strength and hope. And um, it's literally a book that has um, other people who have either been drug addicts or family members of substance abusers, I'll say, because it's not just uh, drugs. And, um, and, stories that you can literally relate to Mm. so you can navigate through all of that Mm -hmm. and uh, they provide you with flyers Um, I can't go through all of them because I'm teaching they they send me all this stuff okay um, you know it's just a family group and it's 
it just gives you an outlet because when when it comes to addiction it's not just the addict but it's also the family sometimes they struggle with fear and shame guilt and that stigma and they suffer in silence you know that's true yeah that's true and you know you want to help sometimes you're afraid that you say the wrong thing the person might fly off the handle so you just end up sitting there in silence and not saying that saying anything because you don't want to get that person upset well you know judy you have provided so much valuable information that we all can use and help someone maybe in our lives or someone um, that we may know help them get some some tangible tips and information on how to handle the situation and where to get help so i want to thank you so much for being my guest today i didn't realize how we've been having such a good conversation so much information <laughs> sharing time is just flying by but it's all been good. And I thank you again for being with me today. I wanted to say thank you for having me. You have a great podcast and I feel so honored Mm. to be on here. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed the topic and found something that you can apply to your own life. Don't forget to share this episode with your family and friends. And remember, Live well daily. Mm-hmm.